Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing, who will be part of the CanMed 2020 conference in Pasadena, California, this September 20th through 22nd. On this episode, we talk with our CanMed 2020 medicine keynote presenter, Dr. Bonnie Goldstein of Canna Centers. Bonnie is a CanMed staple. In fact, she has either presented at or attended every CanMed event going back to our very first at Harvard Medical School. She has also been a very important part of the CanMed Advisory Board, where she helps to shape the content of the conference each year. Bonnie has treated thousands of patients with cannabis medicine, and as I learned from our conversation, her patients range in age from just a few weeks to 90 plus. We talked a lot about how she goes about evaluating patients, determining formulations, and dosing these patients in our conversation. We are excited to have Bonnie as a keynote at CanMed 2020 this year, but that will not be the only way she's contributing. Bonnie is also leading a full-day medical practicum along with Dr. Dustin Sulak, Dr. Kevin Spillman, and Eloise Thiessen, who is a board-certified MP. This is a great opportunity for healthcare professionals to learn about the latest research into cannabinoid therapies and also tap into the deep clinical experience the instructors have to offer. When you consider that most medical schools don't teach the endocannabinoid system, courses like this are really the only way healthcare providers can learn about how to properly administer cannabinoid therapies. Attendees will walk away with practical information about the different types of extractions and products that are on the market and optimal dosing. Learn more at canmedevents.com slash practicum. The practicum kicks off this year's CanMed 2020 on September 20th, and it will be followed by two full days of oral and poster presentations about the latest research into cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. Go to canmedevents.com now to see the latest collection of presenters and purchase your ticket to the event. If you're hearing this before May 20th, you're in luck. You can purchase a full conference pass for just $420, which is more than half off the full price. You don't want to miss out on this deal. Head over to canmedevents.com now. Now, I know what you're thinking. What if the event is postponed due to COVID-19? First, rest assured that we are working closely with the Pasadena Convention Center to make sure we can provide a safe environment for our staff and attendees. As of this recording, the event is still on. But just in case, we have updated our refund policy to provide a 100% refund to any ticket holders in the event that we do reschedule and the new dates cause a conflict. Check out our website for details. Before we get to my conversation with Bonnie, I want to thank this episode's sponsor, the American Cannabis Nurses Association. The ACNA is a national organization dedicated to expanding the knowledge base of endocannabinoid therapeutics among nurses. Their mission is to advance excellence in cannabis nursing practice through advocacy, collaboration, education, research, and policy development. Learn more at CannabisNurses.org. Okay, and without any further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Bonnie Goldstein. Good 
Good afternoon, Bonnie. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. First, again, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us today in what must be a, a hectic time for you and your patients. How has this uh, pandemic affected your practice? It's a great question. Um, so we've changed from in-person appointments to all now uh, via telemedicine or telephone um, because we certainly don't want to put anybody who's sick at risk or even healthy people at risk. Uh, so we're we're following socially uh, social distancing and um, lockdown. I'm encouraging all my patients to try as much as they can to limit their exposure. Um, as you know, I take care of many sick children who have um, epilepsy, autism, cancer, all kinds of serious conditions, and certainly coronavirus would not be something that would be a good thing for them to get at this point. So I'm hoping everybody is staying home and just uh, hanging in there. Absolutely. And has it been more difficult to access cannabis and get their medicine? Apart from people just being fearful of going out and having exposure, it really has not been. California has deemed uh, cannabis uh, medicine as essential. And it is essential. I have children, if they miss a dose of oil, who will have a terrible seizure and potentially end up in the hospital, and potentially it could be deadly. So um, this is not, um, you know, haphazard, you know, here and there use of cannabis. This is medicine for so many of uh, my patients and so many Californians, as well as in other states. And it's unfortunate that there are people out there who uh, think that... Um, uh, this is not necessary medicine, but there are people who just obviously are still unenlightened as far as I can tell. Yeah. But fortunately in California and here in Massachusetts, where we're located too, it's great that cannabis has been deemed as essential. Is that something you would have expected when you first began treating your patients with cannabis? Well, yes, because remember on, I'm on the medical side. I see people who are usually in my office as a last resort. They've sought every type of treatment and they don't know why cannabis would help them. They don't know the science behind it, but they show up and ask, um, you know, I really want to use this um, because somebody told me it might help or I want to try it or can you tell me more about it? And so I knew about the medicinal properties because, you know, of my experience, but also reading the scientific literature and following the research that is ongoing. And, you know, there's this statement a lot of people, there's not enough research. There's tons of research. We just mm -hmm. have to read it and learn about it. And, you know, look, uh, we're, there's three-day conferences about all the research. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> there's a lot of research. And what we are missing is the ability in the United States to do human clinical trials, but they are being done elsewhere. And they are certainly showing that even if we don't get to the primary endpoint that we might be seeking, meaning, oh, you know, everybody has pain relief or whatever, um, we are certainly seeing that it is uh, safe and well-tolerated and there's really no... Uh, increased uh, danger with cannabis. In fact, one of the things I tell people is over and over again, if you just go into the scientific literature and just read 
the clinical trials in humans, what you will see is it says well-tolerated, very minimal side effects, unless they go very, very high dose. And of course, with very high doses of anything, you may push into the world of side effects. But usually with cannabis medicine, you don't need very high doses. Um, But anyway, going back to this essential medicine part of it, um, it's an interesting thing. They're calling it an essential medicine, but yet California where I practice, is charging medical patients ridiculous taxes on their essential medicine. So we now have a little bit of a conflict, and maybe this can be something that we can use after the pandemic kind of settles down and we have a handle on it to potentially protect uh, medical patients using cannabis from the tax burden. Because, you know, if you think about somebody who's ill, they're not working, Um, They might be uh, on a fixed income, and then it's out of pocket, certainly not covered by insurance, and then the state is taxing them on top. By the way, the big point here is that you do not pay taxes on your other uh, medications like your pharmaceuticals. Those are not taxed. So why they're taxing medical patients is beyond me, and I feel that it's very disingenuous to call it essential medicine and then slap a whole bunch of taxes on it. Yeah, absolutely. I would think that that would be an opportunity to get that changed to say that, yeah, you're, you're deeming it essential in the time of a pandemic. How about you deem it as essential after the fact and remove that tax? I think, I think that would be a great thing, a great change to come out of all of this. We're going to work on it. Excellent. So I I did want to talk about, um, the types of patients that you see in your practice. Um, what are some of the conditions? And you mentioned that you're, you're treating children. What are some of the typical ages? Who's typically coming to see you? So in terms of age group, you know, my youngest patient is six months old or sorry, six weeks old when he presented, he had a genetic syndrome that caused terrible seizures. Um, And even the physician taking care of the patient was on board with cannabis because he had seen this syndrome before and knew that the medications that are currently available for seizures in that particular instance were not very effective. And then my oldest patient was about 100. I have uh-huh. colleagues who have patients who are even older than that, 103, 105. Um, so in terms of age, you know, we all have endo, an endocannabinoid system, so it, it really doesn't matter how old you are. There's no real contraindication in terms of age to use cannabis. Um, mostly, I, you know, I do specialize in pediatrics because that was my background as a, a pediatric-trained physician. Um, and I did pediatric emergency medicine for many years, so I'm comfortable with sick children and, and helping uh, kids who have complex medical conditions. Um, in children, I'd say the most common conditions are treatment-resistant epilepsy, autism, cancer, GI uh, disorders like Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, autoimmune disease, um, a lot of genetic syndromes that have either medical or um, behavioral components to them. So really it runs the gamut in uh, pediatrics. And then in adults, you know, obviously there's a lot of conditions that we see, but the top three are pain, chronic pain, um, anxiety, depression, and then also insomnia. And remember those three often run together. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have chronic pain, you're probably not sleeping great and you have some anxiety and depression, right? If you have anxiety and depression, sometimes you'll have other medical conditions where pain plays a big role. 
And then sleep is huge. I mean, um, so many people struggling with sleep. Um, the sleep industry is multi-billion dollars in the United States between pharmaceuticals and other, other treatments. And uh, I do find that about 90% or even a little bit more than that of patients that will try cannabis uh, report an improvement in sleep. Wow. Okay. There's a few things I wanted to unpack from that. The first being that I didn't realize you had such a wide range of, of ages that you were treating. Um, it, it makes me curious, how does endocannabinoid function change with age? Is there sort of a time where it, where it falls off in, in older folks? Yeah, great question. So in children, they have an immature, like everything about a child's body and nervous system and brain is immature right? I mean, they're babies and they're, then they're mm -hmm. growing in school age and then into teenage years and they're constantly changing. We think about someone born yesterday and 18 years from now, completely different human. So um, it's important to understand that the endocannabinoid system is uh, present at the beginning of life and through fetal growth and then is there during infancy and so on. And it goes through changes and the levels of endocannabinoids and, and the cannabinoid receptors are all changing and are somewhat different. We find it's very counterintuitive, but it appears from uh, some research that children are less sensitive to the effects of THC than adults. And you would think, oh my gosh, they're little, they would be more uh, sensitive, but they're not. They're, they seem to be less sensitive to the intoxicating effects, and that's because their endocannabinoid system is quite immature and they have probably less density of cannabinoid type 1 receptors where THC interacts and causes the intoxicating effects. And then as people age, their endocannabinoid system, it's been shown, starts to, uh, for lack of a better word, atrophy. And, you know, when somebody, we think about somebody who's old, how their muscles kind of, their muscle mass goes down. We know brain starts to shrink as you get older. And very similar, their endocannabinoid system starts to, um, uh, deteriorate. I mean, that's maybe a strong word for it, but it does start to uh, succumb to the aging process. And certainly um, what we know our endocannabinoid system to do is to play a very uh, well-described protective role. And so as somebody ages, I really believe that they should have support and augmentation of their endocannabinoid system through using cannabinoids um, to help continue the protective process as they get older. Well, that's interesting about children being less sensitive to THC. Is that the same with other cannabinoids like CBD? Well, remember, um, THC is the one that works directly at the, uh, it has THC has multiple targets, let's say, in the body, but it's the one that binds directly to the cannabinoid receptor, giving the well-known effects. CBD has some action within the endocannabinoid system, but it has many, many actions, what we call non-cannabinoid system uh, mechanisms of action. So it targets many other receptors and many other uh, locations, enzymes, transporters in the body. So... Um, I one, I don't know that it's been researched in terms of sensitivity to CBD, but in a way you almost would not necessarily be able to know because 
you don't always see immediate effects from CBD, right? You can give it. And somebody says, well, I don't feel anything. But meanwhile, it's doing something. You know, it's anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, neuroprotective, anti-epilepsy. But they may say, well, I don't feel it, meaning the same as most people who take THC will tell you, oh, I feel it, right? So um, it may be difficult to assess. But um, I do find that young children who, let's say, going through cancer treatment or going through, um, who have epilepsy, when we give them THC that might, a dose that might intoxicate an adult, they, you know, we, I stay in very close touch with the parents. I always tell them there's what I call the ceiling dose. And the ceiling dose of THC is the dose at which you feel intoxicated. And even though a child may not be able to describe that, I will tell you parents know their children very well. And they'll call me and say, my child's eyes are a little red. He looks a little glassy, seems kind of mellow. Okay, we've probably hit the ceiling dose. And it's surprising, though, in these young children just what that dose is because many of my adult patients may not even be able to get to that dose because their ceiling dose is so much lower. So not everybody. And again, there's always outliers. We must understand that everybody's endocannabinoid system is different, genetically uh, programmed and determined. And how we react to cannabinoids is very individual. There's similarities, of course, but, um, you know, what I'm talking about with children is we can't just, you know, like, and people will say, oh, well, what about all the overdoses that, you know, all these hospitals may see? Well, because if you leave your edible that has 100 milligrams laying around, of course, a child, if they ate 100 milligrams, they're going to be intoxicated. I'm talking about low medicinal doses. Yeah, so let's get into dosing. And first, I wanted to ask you, um, where do you sort of come down on the the debate or the divide between sort of whole plant medicine versus like isolated compounds? Well, look, as scientists and researchers, we must know what isolated compounds do. So I want to know what does CBD do as what what is CBD responsible for? So before you can make any treatment plan for somebody, you, you have to know what these, how these compounds work. And so um, it's important that people understand that, yes, in research, we use um, isolated compounds to understand the uh, mechanisms of action and the therapeutic benefits or detriments of phytocannabinoids. But there are is a nice body of of research that shows that these compounds clearly work together, enhancing each other, but also minimizing some of the uh, potential unwanted effects. For instance, CBD can buffer a little, you know, some of the high from THC, um, almost what we call antagonists. Um, they have opposite effects at the receptor and, um, so knowing that, we can use that to, to our um, benefit. Um, so what's important oh, – hang on one second. Sorry. Um, so what's important to understand about that is that even though a study might show isolated CBD did X, Y, and Z in the study – if we use whole plant, which I will share with you, I always encourage whole plant. Why would I remove medicinal compounds from somebody's plant? And everybody would say, oh, it's medicine. You should control it and all of that. Well, yeah, there's a lot of companies now that have very consistent medicine batch to batch. If I test the bottles batch to batch, I see they're very similar. 
And I can use those as medicine because I'm following the patients closely and I see what the medicine is doing for them. And you have to know what each cannabinoid can do. And then you have to be able to understand what happens when they kind of work together. And it, one of the things that I had to kind of come around to as a scientist was that there is always going to be some small level of unknown when you're using whole plant that somebody might be sensitive to something else that's in the bottle. But if it doesn't fit them or suit them, we sometimes try different things and then we try to narrow in on maybe this did work for you and this didn't work for you. What does this bottle have that this bottle doesn't have? Right? So you, you try to be scientific about it and try to narrow it down. Um, but studies show that whole plant seems to have higher efficacy than isolated compounds. No, I like that response. Very, very diplomatic that, you know, <laughs> we know that, the, <laughs> that, that we get a lot of benefit out of the whole plant, but there still is um, very much a need to be studying the isolated compounds. So I think that is a, a nice balance between the two. So, but I'm curious when, and just in your approach in, in treating patients, is there a certain sort of blend of cannabinoids and terpenes that you um, have found to be most effective or that you deploy in certain situations? How do you sort of yeah. go about that? So that's a, a loaded question because like a lot, I get a lot of families or people that ask me, which, what's the best CBD? What's the best medicine? And the answer is the best medicine is the one that works for you. And it may be different for you than it is for me, even though we have the same condition. And that's because what we're trying to do is take a plant that has over 500 different compounds, i.e. a very complex product of mother nature, and I'm trying to match it to your extremely complex physiology. And a particular, let's say, chemovar chemical variety of plant, i.e. strain, which I try not to use that word because it's not really accurate. The word is chemovar, chemical variety of plant that works for your arthritis may not work for my arthritis. Why? Well, because again, your DNA is different from my DNA. Your response, your absorption, the way you metabolize, the way you excrete chemicals from your body is very different from the way that I do. Um, if you've ever talked to someone who has been successful using cannabis, they'll tell you, I had to try a number of products to really narrow down on what worked for me. Um, Park, let's take Parkinson's disease. So Parkinson's is a neurodegenerative disorder. And the beginning of Parkinson's, uh, the course of illness is different than the middle, than the end. So when somebody says to me, what do you use for Parkinson's? Well, you know, where is the person in their course, right? Are they just diagnosed? Are they 10 years in? Are they 20 years in? What are their most symptoms that they're trying to address? Um, how old are they? Do they? Can they tolerate THC? Do they not want THC in their, in their mix? Um, there's a, so much to determining what works for somebody. And that's why you can't necessarily just walk into a dispensary and say, oh, I have X disease. What should I take? And then somebody hands you and says, oh, use this. You might get lucky and it works. Hey, great. But if it doesn't work, you have, must understand that this is not cookie cutter. It's not one size fits all. I get all the time. What ratio should my child be on for epilepsy? There is no one size fits all for that. It's absolutely ridiculous to think 
that this complex plant and your complex physiology is going to be, you know, as they say, one size fits all. It just does not work that way. Yeah, I imagine that's got to be difficult. Are there certain certain traits, certain markers that you commonly see that, to know that, oh, I, I imagine that this person might benefit from um, linalool or any of the particular terpenes or, or cannabinoids that you've just um, sort of gathered in your experience? Yes. Yeah, so uh, let's say, take a child with autism, for instance. So we know a, autism is a a condition where the brain is is overly excited, what we call neuroexcitation. Same thing with epilepsy. The brain is overly excited. And what's happening is you're getting neurotransmitters, right? The chemical messengers in your brain are sending messages that aren't always adaptive and, and correct. And so we're trying to tell those neurotransmitters, you know, dial it down. I use the analogy like someone who many of the kids with autism are just a lot of parents will acknowledge this, like I call it, it's a, it's a Ferrari flying down the freeway with no brakes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we don't want to stop the Ferrari. What we want is the Ferrari to go speed limit, right? We want to just balance. And obviously neuroexcitation is out of balance. It's an out of balance message. If a bear is chasing you, yes, you want your brain to be overexcited, fight or flight, but not in just everyday function. So many of those kids have been shown to respond to the calming terpenes like linalool. Um, the anti-inflammatory terpenes like beta-caryophyllin. Um, there's a, a terpene pinene, which can help with focus and concentration and learning. And some people find that to be very helpful for their child with autism. Again, ultimately, what we're trying to do is take this really large amount of products that are out there and narrow them down to fit that specific person that we're treating But we can start with using our um, knowledge about these compounds to say, hey, let's start here. And by the way, this is what doctors are doing all the time. If you came in Mm. to my office, let's say if I was a regular doctor practicing medicine, I have a handful of tools in my toolbox, i.e. the pharmaceuticals, and using my knowledge, my clinical experience, the research, and kind of trying to make the best educated guess that I can make let me pick this drug and tell you to take it, right? And sometimes I'm going to get lucky and it's going to be the perfect match and the perfect fit. And you're going to say, wow, my doctor was great. And she knew exactly what to give to me. And sometimes, by the way, which has happened to me, you take one dose and say, there is no way in hell I'm taking another dose of that. And you call your doctor and say, oh my gosh, you know, like I'm thinking I need to go to the ER after I took that pill. I've been on the end of that once in my life, and that once was enough. And I remember calling the doctor, and the doctor on call was not my doctor. who said, gee, I wonder why he started with that one, which did not instill any confidence, of course. <laughs> but at the same time, right. you're, you're making the best guess you can. Until somebody takes something, you just do not know how they're going to respond. The beauty of cannabis is that you're not going to be harmed. You might... Now, if it's got a lot of THC and you have an unpleasant, like, you know, THC overdose experience where you get too intoxicated and you get paranoid and anxious and you freak out a little, you still won't die from that. So it's okay. And you're probably not going to end up in an ER if you get some reassurance that you're going to be fine and it's going to wear off. But the reality is, is cannabis is extremely safe to trial and error. 
And for many of my patients, the reason I'm able to help them is they're willing to hang in there with me as we methodically approach a trial and error uh, way of doing this. Because again, look, there was a study out of Israel that took 60 kids with severe behavioral issues um, as part of their autism. And 50% of them responded, basically 50% responded to a 20 to 1 ratio CBD to THC. Well, what about the other 50%? You know, that's a crapshoot, right? The other mm. the other 50%, about half of them, a little slightly more than half, responded to adding in a little more THC. So often that's the approach is let's start with this and then we can add something in if your child looks like it's not gonna your child's not gonna be the one that's in that responder category. So Anybody using cannabis for a serious illness has to kind of accept the fact, and I tell everybody, you must be patient, and you must understand that probably for the first three to six months, you're going to be doing trial and error. That is just part of it. And you may get very lucky, and the first product out of the, out of the gate helps you. That's terrific, but sometimes that's not how it works. And so hanging in there and just getting some good advice and trialing things is, is pretty much standard. It's par for the course. Now, what about delivery method? Um, I hear you saying bottles a lot. Is a lot of oils and tinctures that you're recommending? I am. And one of the reasons is because you can really control the dosing, right? So if you buy um, uh, an edible, let's say, right? And let's say the edible has got 10 milligrams and you cut it into, four, let's say, a little piece of, um, I don't know, a chocolate. And you cut it into four pieces. You can go as low as 2.5 milligrams. And then maybe you could cut that piece again in half and get a low dose. But with oils, I can measure out a half a milligram of THC, which can be medicinal for some people. You want to be able to titrate what we call titrate dosing, to be able to start with very tiny doses and go up. If cat, Let's say you bought THC capsules and they only come in 25 milligrams, but your dose, you figured out somehow that your dose is 15 milligrams. Well, the capsule comes as 25. How are you taking 15? So I find that, init in, especially initially, again, if, if we don't get the, if we can get the dose right, then we can look at what products allow for that dosing. So um, obviously, inhaling is not something that we do a lot with pediatric patients. There are some parents using uh, like a, a type of vaporizer where it has a bag and then you can put a little mask over the child's face. So for some kids who have severe rage and aggression as part of their syndrome or as part of autism or whatever it is they have, they are using that vape in those cases. They're not really medicating by that because the other thing with children is that children grow and you have to be able to increase the dose based on uh, their weight. And as they, you don't want them to outgrow the dose. That's very typical for any medicine in pediatrics. Most, most medicines are based on weight in the pediatric world. For adults though, I find that having liquids that you can titrate, um, you know, a quarter of a dropper to a half a dropper for instance, 0.25 milligrams to 0.5. If 0.5 is too much and 0.25 is not enough, you can use a little syringe um, to measure out 0.3 or 0.4. It just allows you to kind of really narrow in on dosing. Does everybody need that? No, just some people need that. Not everybody needs it, but I do like tinctures for that particular reason. The other thing with tinctures is that you can hide the flavor in food. You can actually buy empty capsules and make your own capsules so that if you can't find the, the dose you're looking for, you can make your own. So it just allows for a lot of, um, um, it's very easy to work with. However, 
edibles are great. Um, you know, vaporizers, sure. I'm all on board with those. I also encourage people to use topicals. So there is no, again, no delivery method that is better than any other. I just think as a physician who's trying to dial in dosing for people and to find that sweet spot, especially in a you know population of children who um, are growing and changing, who sometimes, you know, they're nonverbal and you don't know what's going on. You want to be able to make changes um, simply. Great. And we're coming up on the end here, but I did want to ask you, um, do you have any idea how many physicians out there are like you? Well, not like you, because there's no one like you, Bonnie. But... Oh, very sweet. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but physician, but pediatric um, clinicians who are actually treating um, children with cannabis, are there a lot of a lot of them out there? And how does one find one? Right. So unfortunately, no. There are a lot of cannabis doctors that will treat children who may not have had specific training with pediatrics. And I do think that because cannabis is so safe that you're, they're not going to harm anybody, but whether or not they understand the nuances of treating a child, you know, after working with children for so many years, there's definitely some nuances there. It's not, it's not just a small adult, that's for sure. Um, but I think there's probably less than 10 of us in the whole country wow. that are specifically pediatric trained. I know of a handful on the East Coast or a few on the East Coast. I know of a doctor in Florida. I think there's a couple in Colorado. And of course, there may be others and not to discount them. But, um, you know, there's really not very many of us. And I think part of it is that it's still considered controversial. Um, I recently gave grand rounds at a, at a uh, local children's hospital and the doctor who introduced me said, you know, this is very controversial. And I thought, I've been doing this for so long. It's so, to me, it's not controversial at all. Um, we, you, children have an endocannabinoid system. We have some understanding that there's dysregulation or deficiency within that endocannabinoid system for, for sure with epilepsy, autism, maybe with ADHD. That research is, is being done in other countries. And you would never leave a child with a deficiency of any other necessary chemical in their body. Like you would, like, what do we call insulin deficiency? Like type one uh, diabetes is an insulin deficiency. And what do we give those people? We give them insulin. If you have a thyroid deficiency, you have what's called hypothyroidism. Um, so we now know that children with autism, based on two studies, one out of um, Stanford University and one out of Israel, show that children with autism have low levels of their natural, what we call endocannabinoid, their inner cannabis compounds, which serve a protective role of regulating the brain chemistry. And here now we have a population of kids who have dysregulated behaviors. That's their brain chemistry, not balanced. Why wouldn't we fix the imbalance, right? Now, I'm not saying more research isn't needed, but you know, I've treated so many patients and when parents say, my child can go back to school, my child's, the aggression is gone. We are no longer living in fear of our 10-year-old. That's huge. And when we look at um, downside, I will, I always say, I point to the patients, ask the parents, they will tell you whether or not they're seeing side effects and all of that kind of thing. So to me, it's not controversial. And to me, this is, again, just another tool in the toolbox. And we are smart enough to understand this. We're smart enough to do the research. Right now, 
we should continue to move forward so we understand more. We should not, you know, there's why, is, and many people say, why is there a ban on research? Look, ultimately it comes down to money. The only reason cannabis is being kept as a schedule one is because it can replace lots of pharmaceuticals. And, you know, that doesn't help the pharmaceutical companies. So my, my point being that, what is everybody afraid of? Let's just do the research so we can finally know. So when somebody comes to me and says, is cannabis going to help my child with this rare syndrome? Wouldn't it be nice if I could tell them whether or not they should spend their money on this? Mm. Well, I, I didn't realize the number of pediatric uh, clinicians using cannabis was so low. Um, so what is your advice to parents who maybe have a child they think could benefit from cannabis, but don't have access to, um, to one of those? Um, Right. Where do they start? Well, so some of us do um, educational consults where we're just educating the parent on kind of where to begin. There are some resources online. There's a, a website um, that's a, it's a nonprofit that I work with them on their advisory board called Whole Plan Access for Autism. Um, it's WPA4A.com. There's uh, projectcbd.org. That's a nonprofit that people can turn to to try to find a referral um, or, um, you know, find a doctor that's cannabis friendly. They're, luckily, we're moving in the right direction and there are more doctors that are learning about this and are starting to incorporate it into their practice. So at least we're moving in the right direction. But you may have to seek out somebody who's able to do a telemedicine uh, consultation um, if you can't find somebody in your state. And of course, you should always just take a look online and see if you can make sure what your state allows for so that you're not getting into trouble, making sure that you are uh, following the rules, because um, certainly we don't want anybody's child getting taken away for trying cannabis or using cannabis when the state laws don't allow it. Again, we should have a federal uh, uh, leadership on this, but right now we, it's state by state what you're allowed uh, to give your child. So, Right. Well, thank you for those resources. I'll definitely put some links in the show notes so people um, can check those out. So I know we're coming up on the end here, and I did want to talk about CanMed, of course. That's kind of what brought us here. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you've been at all the CanMeds, right? You've been with us each year? I have since the beginning. That's great. And we're so happy to have you as a keynote presenter at this year's event. Um, I was wondering if you might want to give us a little preview of what you're going to be presenting on. Uh, I think I'm just sharing, um, you know, my findings and kind of going over what the latest research is in terms of uh, pediatrics and um, how patients, my patients are responding to various cannabinoids. Um, everybody's focused on THC and CBD, and certainly I focus on those two, but there's other cannabinoids that we are using, CBG, THCA, CBDA. Um, and uh, now just coming out on the market in California are THCV, tetrahydrocannabivarin, and CBDV, cannabidivarin, which all have, again, their own medicinal properties. Um, and it's important for people to understand that there is not just one way or one ratio or one product. There's many different um, uh, compounds that we can use 
therapeutically to address illness. And again, this goes back to, right, if you're not a big responder to just CBD-THC combination, is there something else that the plant offers that you can try? And, you know, for every patient of mine that does well on CBD or THC, there's those that don't even take those cannabinoids and they're using other cannabinoids. So um, I think I'll be talking about that. I haven't written, I haven't uh, gotten the talk together yet. So I, you know, sometimes it takes you to, to other places. And certainly what's fascinating too, is that between now, April and September, when the conference is, there's new data and new research. And so, you know, sometimes I'm literally putting together something a week before that is new. And this is a very exciting time to be in this industry. Yeah, absolutely. And as, as the person on the team who usually has to put the, um, put the slides together and get everything ready for the production team. You're not the only one who waits until to get your presentation together. <laughs> I do try to get it in early, but you get sometimes these wonderful cases or good results or even a, a groundbreaking uh, research that, that just gets published and you want to include it because you want to keep people on the, you want to be cutting edge and leading edge. You don't want to, you know, in this, in, in this crazy world of cannabis, you know, I joke around that like one year is equal to like seven dog years, right? Because there's so much that you, things, so many things change. And again, it's such an active area of research all around the world that you have to really stay on top of it in order to be able to be on, to be, have the latest and greatest. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we love having this event every year. So we can, we can get the latest and greatest and get everyone together uh, to share their information. And we love having you a part of it. So, um, before we go, is there any other, um, any other information you want to share in terms of how people can either get in touch with you or follow what you're doing, uh, whether it be website, social media? Sure. So we have a Facebook page. It's Canna Centers. Um, just, you can look for Canna hyphen centers. And then I have an Instagram, which is, um, Bonnie Goldstein, MD. And I, uh, don't overpost, but I try to put things on Facebook that are good articles that I come across in the scientific literature that I think should get out there. You know, there's this um, finding that it takes 17 years for uh, article uh, scientific information to trickle down to doctors, which is like blows my mind. Um, hmm. Because, but remember, if you're a busy practice, you're taking care of patients, you're taking care of your business, and you're you're, you know, you're deep in, it's very hard to keep up with the research. So I try really hard to make sure I post articles that are, again, um, uh, some of the latest information that can be helpful to people and it's meaningful to people. And then on Instagram, I just often share stories of my patients or, you know, reposts of, of patients who are getting success because people, we, we are fighting also propaganda and fear of cannabis. Um, and what people need to realize is that under medical supervision, cannabis is extremely safe. I joke around that I'm a chicken inside. I am. I am a very conservative doctor overall. And for me to be able to feel comfortable with cannabis, I will tell you, it is extremely safe. My elderly parents take cannabis for their conditions, and I would never let them take anything that I would think that would harm them. And I certainly wouldn't recommend cannabis to children if it wasn't safe. So I just think people need to realize that um, this kind of party line we were dealt with, you know, we were handed a long time ago that, oh, it's dangerous and it kills brain cells and it's going to 
do all these terrible things. It's just baloney. <laughs> I think that's a great way to close it out. <laughs> thanks again for joining us, Bonnie. We'll see you in the fall. All right. Thanks so much, Ben. Take care. See you soon. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Bonnie Goldstein. It's always such a pleasure to get to talk with her. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And also please check out the Canna Center's website. Next week, we're shifting gears a bit as we welcome Innie Afia from CanaSafe Labs. Innie is the lab director at CanaSafe, one of the largest testing labs in California. We discuss the importance of safety testing, challenges that come with navigating regulations, the recent vaping crisis, and more. That episode will drop May 27th, two weeks from this episode. In the meantime, please go to canmedevents.com slash coffee talk and sign up for email updates. That will enter you into a drawing to win two tickets to our CanMed 2020 VIP dinner and keep you up to date with all things CanMed 2020. If social media is your thing, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for CanMed Events. And lastly, if you are listening on a podcast app, go ahead and hit the subscribe button so that new episodes automatically download to your device. And if you want to leave us a five-star review, that'd be great too. All right, that's it from us. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to come back for the next episode of CanMed Coffee Talk. Coffee Talk.